Welcome to KCADV's certification series. You are listening to Legal Basics 1, Part 1, Confidentiality and Documentation. We hope you review the materials that were sent, or you can visit certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Welcome, everyone. You are joining in on KCADV certification series. And right now we are talking about legal basics. And I'm going to call that legal basics part one, where we're talking about confidentiality and documentation. And with me today, I have the general counsel of KCADV with me, Meg Savage. Hello, Meg. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. You just said you've been trying really hard to get out of the court system, and I've reeled you back into this conversation. So we're going to pick your brain for just a little bit if you're good with it. Okie (laughs) dokie. So confidentiality to me is sort of one of the cornerstones of advocacy work. When you were hired by KCADB programming and you were in shelter program, non-residential programming, confidentiality, I think, is something that we hold really dear as to all of our continual work with men, women, and children who are experiencing intimate partner violence. And I think everything that we've talked about through certification modules is, you know, what is sort of the purpose of advocates and and what is our role? And a huge piece, both when we were talking about youth advocacy and adult advocacy, we talk a lot about trust. And I think it's critically important as we're touching and building on trust and relationship that confidentiality is something that we need to really uplift in our work with families. It's really what we bring to the table. We're there, we are present with folks, we hear their stories, we're keepers of their stories. And if anything else, holding dear and precious is their ownership of their stories and their decision when to divulge and when not to divulge. And so we're going to talk a little bit today sort of through the process of different areas that we're working with individuals and what confidentiality might look like in those arenas. And so, Meg, sort of to begin with, um, as we're talking about in courts, many of our advocates are going to courts daily in all of our 120 counties in Kentucky. And so that is an area we'll talk about it in part B, about practicing law and advocacy of practicing law, not practicing law. But what are some tips or what are some guidance that you can give advocates when they are working in community settings and in the court arena to make sure that we're being very thoughtful about confidentiality with those families? Right. So, you know, one of the primary reasons for maintaining confidentiality, as you said, trust, but also safety. So many survivors are concerned that someone who might be a batterer or someone connected to a batterer might find out that they're utilizing the services of a program. Also, in a more indirect way, the safety concerns of a survivor who you know, needs to have the trust that they can talk to an advocate in order to really get the rich and full services that they need without fearing that the advocate is then going to be sharing that information around the community or in other sorts of legal actions where that information might be harmful to the survivor. So those are sort of the cornerstones of why we want to maintain confidentiality. And in recognition of that, 
most of our federal funders in the Violence Against Women Act, in the Family Violence um, Prevention and Services Act, and in the Victims of Crime Act, there are very specific provisions that say if you want this federal money, you have to guarantee that you are going to get to keep the confidentiality of the people who are receiving your services. And then we also have um, a state law, CARES 209A, contains a provision that says that, you know, anybody receiving services, and it's not just people who've received services, it's also people who ask for services or people who've been denied for services. All of that needs to be maintained with the highest level of confidentiality. And again, the reason for that really comes down to the safety of the survivor. So for some survivors, it may not be as critical, but for others, it might be, um, you know, a life or death situation if somebody were to find them. I think that's an interesting point that you make. I think we often hear or talk about confidentiality of people that have actually used services of our our member programs, but sometimes it's an individual who has not received services, but people are still collecting that information. So a court may want to know, has so-and-so been to shelter? Has so-and-so attending support group? And it's just as critically important that we don't answer that question, right? Because that could also sort of let the abusive partner maybe know where he or she is or is not. It can elude or change the perspective of a judge ruling if they've been attending parenting groups or groups or or not. And actually, they could be going to another program. But sometimes when we go, no, we've never received a crisis call from this individual or no, they're not attending support group. That's not something we really should share either. Right. So typically in most situations where anybody is asking one of our programs, one of our advocates, you know, has this person received services from you? Are they in your shelter right now? Have they ever been in your shelter? Now, the baseline answer is going to be we can't confirm or deny that anybody has utilized our services. And by giving that sort of blanket answer consistently, you know, it sends a message to our community partners, you know, that that's just not information that we can divulge with some exceptions. And that keeps not only that individual survivor safe and protects their privacy, but it also works to the benefit of all the survivors that we serve because we have to be thinking about what our role is in the community, how well we're trusted, will people come, you know, to access services, do they feel safe? I think it's one of the pieces that we've talked a little bit when we're working with families and and survivors is to explain the why. And I think it's critically as important as we're working with community partners and court that we explain the why as well, because we sometimes rely on each other. We sometimes rely on courts. We sometimes rely on our partners to assist and support. And so I think if the foundation and the work is done ahead of time where we can call so-and-so agency and say, I need you to know, I don't know why I keep using the word cornerstone, but kind of the cornerstone, the grounding of the work that we do is to hold women's and men's stories confidential. So you are often going to get the answer. I cannot confirm or deny. And this is why our state, local, federal dollars require that. Our trust 
of our families relies on that we hold those stories true. And it is for that person to divulge that and that we have laws that sort of regulate that as opposed to not clearing that with people ahead of time. Like I will hear new staff who get, they're really activisty, right? It's really kind of nice, but they'll just, somebody will call and they'll go, I'm sorry, I can't confirm or deny this. And then click, you know, and we want to not lose the relationship, but we want the partners to honor our purpose and our role. We all have different roles. Police have different roles. Advocacy agencies, community advocates, they all have different roles. And I think some work of explaining our, I can't confirm or deny, is important to maintain the relationship, but also protect families. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And so a huge part of advocacy is not just working one-on-one with a survivor, but it's making those community connections and keeping them as strong as you can. And you may even be participating on local task force or councils that, you know, you're trying to do systems improvement work. And, you know, in those situations, typically you're not going to be able to reveal information about who or who hasn't, you know, accessed the program services. So any opportunity that advocates and especially directors have to have those conversations and it's best to have them outside of the context of a crisis situation where you have someone, you know, wanting to come into the shelter or, you know, demanding that you give them this information that's usually not a good time to try to, you know, talk in a, a calm and reasonable manner and explain, you know, all the many, many reasons why as a program and as, you know, program staff, you know, we have to maintain confidentiality unless one of the limited exceptions to that exists. One of the areas that I think new staff in particular, but all advocates can really fall into this is when they're really trying to be efficient or helpful to the family. So they break that confidentiality a little bit. I think I know what this person's going to want and to be efficient. I'm going to let this this group know that, you know, whatever, she's attended parenting classes or she wants service on that protective order or she wants service on that visitation or divorce paperwork. And so I don't want to go through the whole process of I've got to go find her and then I've got to, you know, get a release of information. I have to do these things. So sometimes our with best of intentions, we skip over the really critical piece But I will caution advocates is we often don't know and we shouldn't presume we know what steps a woman wants us to take. It is always the survivor's prerogative to receive things, accept things with with some exception, search warrants and things, but with some exceptions. But we shouldn't jump that step. And I sometimes see, again, just for efficiency, advocates might take a cross over into blurry lines that they should not yeah, I would definitely say efficiency, and also sometimes they may feel a little browbeaten into it by a community partner that doesn't want them to take the time, you know, to go and, and make sure that this is going to be okay with the survivor. But it's really important to remember that this information that comes to us from a survivor, you know, that's their information, and it's their right to control who has access to it. And you know, we always need to be exceptionally careful with that. Another reason for that is you don't want to set a precedent in the community that, you know, oh, oh yeah, you know, whatever agency can just pick up the phone and call, you know, the local DV program and, and get confirmation or get information, what have you, because you do it one time 
And then the next time you don't do it because, you know, now you have a different opinion about what the survivor wants and you're going to get pushback. So consistency is really important. And, you know, keeping that in mind and explaining that to survivors up front, you know, hey, if you want me to share, you know, your information, some piece of information with another partner, you know, then I'm going to want you to give me written permission to do that. Another area that we often are asked to discuss uh, another family's circumstances is when we're calling each other our sister programs, right? And so an individual is wanting to go or relocate to another shelter, or perhaps there's been a situation and staying at the current shelter program is not best. You know, maybe there's been a I don't know, a situation between two residents and we just really feel that this person needs to leave or for whatever reason. And so can you talk a little bit about confidentiality between shelter programs? Right. And so it's the same thing. Another domestic violence program, whether that's one of our KCAUE programs or a program in another state, the same rules apply. We have to get a written release from that um, individual if... um, They want us to contact other shelters to see if there's some other options for sheltering in another place. And, you know, it can be frustrating, I guess, for the receiving shelter to feel like they weren't given the full picture, the, you know, the entire information. They certainly have the right to ask for that. And if the shelter that, you know, is calling on behalf of a survivor says, well, you know, I don't have a written release to, you know, to release those specifics. The, sh- the other shelter may say, well, in that case, we, you know, we can't agree to take that person. So, you know, that's a conversation you have to have with that survivor. And it's like, you know, if you don't want to sign the release, that's fine. But this may, you know, impede us trying to find another placement for you. And I think sometimes that lack of information sometimes gives signals maybe to a, another program that maybe there's something that we're trying to hide or, or that's something that that survivor is not wanting us to share. And so the better that we can get the confidentiality released, we're not jumping to conclusion. We're working on facts. We're working on objective thoughts. But but again, I think with efficiency, sometimes shelter programs are really quick to kind of call and say, hey, I've got this person and this is the the scuffle that happened at our program and really just want to caution particularly new advocates to be extremely thoughtful, get that that release of information signed before you begin to share specifics. Absolutely. This is an area that I know we talked a little bit about before we had this conversation, and I know it can be, I don't know, it can be a little uh, nerve wracking, but can we talk a little bit about the cabinet? So for the cabinet families and children, DCBS, whatever you call it, it has 8,000 acronyms to it. What information can shelter programs share even without the release of information? So let's say there's an open CPS case. And a CPS worker is reaching out to the shelter program to get information. What should we be sharing? Yeah, so there's some specific laws in Kentucky that say that when DCBS, Child Protective Services, has an open and active investigation into an allegation of child abuse, neglect, or dependency, that basically everyone in the state has the obligation to cooperate with CPS and allow them onto the property, look at records, you know, talk to anybody. Because of course, you know, the thrust of that investigation is, is there a child that's in danger that needs protective services? At some point in time, that question is going to be answered. And 
DCBS will make a finding on that case, substantiated, unsubstantiated, maybe a family in need of services. And oftentimes those cases will then, you know, go on in terms of there is a court case going on, Child Protective Services is working with the family, you know, a judge is overseeing how that progress is going. So once the determination has been made and it sort of segues into now we're providing services to the family and they have to work a case plan, then at that point in time, the emergency sense of, you know, is there a child in danger and we need to do something right away is pretty much gone. And so at that time, then really in order for a domestic violence program to share information with DCBS workers, there needs to be either a release of information signed by the survivor parent or DCBS would need to serve a subpoena. And even in that case, it's likely that, you know, without the agreement of the survivor parent, that there's probably going to be some court action to try to quash that subpoena. Because so much of the information that DCBS might be asking us about, they can actually get from other sources. And so they just kind of want to throw as much dirt as they can at a parent often. Um, so we have to be very careful about that. And so, you know, if an advocate is approached by a DCBS worker, that's the first determination to make. Is there an open and active case going on that you are investigating right now in this moment? So I really encourage everybody who's, again, is listening into this podcast is to really look through your own agency's policy and procedures, look at the member program service standards, um, talk with your director. This is something that comes up quite a bit. And I think it all, because it's, it comes up, but it always seems to catch us a little bit by surprise. And we sometimes always kind of go through this whole new, and what am I supposed to do? And what can I share? And like, get yourself almost like a CPS fire drill. Right. Like we need to know how to respond when these folks are are asking for help. We certainly want to protect, you know, the safety and well-being of children, um, but we don't want to do it to the detriment of the family. And we certainly don't want to do anything that puts us at odds with our confidentiality regulation through state, local and federal grantors. So we talked a little bit about well, we talked a lot about confidentiality. What are some of the exceptions to confidentiality? Do you want to go through those a little bit? Sure. And there's a lot of information in the member program service standards and the appendices to those. So, you know, any advocate should have already read those, I think, at some point in time and be familiar, you know, with all of MPSS because it's sort of like the, the Bible of our service provision. This is what we need to do in order to provide good services to survivors. So there's a whole section about confidentiality MPSS. And of course, the most obvious and easiest exception when we can share information about a survivor is when they want us to share information. And so in those instances, we're going to get a signed, written, and dated release of information. And that's a form every program keeps on hand. And it should be very specific in terms of what piece of information is going to be shared, who it's going to be shared with, why it's going to be shared. And then it should be dated and it shouldn't be like, you know, a year from now. It should be as time limited as possible. And even when you're working with somebody that isn't able to get into shelter or they're not coming into shelter regularly, 
if you can at least attempt to, you know, get that form to them through email, they can, if they can, you know, print it out and sign it, and then they can take a picture of it and send it back by their phone. You know, really, there's nothing that says it has to be very, very formal, but it should be in writing and it should be signed and it should be dated. And then once you go beyond that, we get into these exceptions to confidentiality that are not driven by the survivor. So we think about things that might be happening in shelter. Say there's a medical emergency or a fire emergency. Obviously, you know, when someone's health and safety is at risk, confidentiality is going to have to fall in the face of that. But we still want to be mindful that we should only share the information that's necessary in order to address that emergency situation in the moment. And we should only be sharing it with the person or persons who are actually responding to that emergency. So one example would be, you know, if somebody is having a medical emergency and, you know, EMS is responding to the shelter you know, do they need to know the person's name? Well, you know, that's not going to help them to resuscitate the person or figure out what's going on with them. Might they need to know what that person has been, you know, taking as far as what the shelter may know about their medications? That might be much more important. And the name piece can wait. So just, you know, kind of using your common sense in terms of responding to those emergencies. So we don't need to open up the drawer and turn over the whole file and then go, oh, I'm wondering if the seizure has something to do with this behavior that I saw yesterday. And I think this is what happened. Like sometimes we get lots of presumptions as to what's led to the emergency. And so again, try to fact base and just give the information that that the EMS needs to respond effectively. Right, because they're going to be documenting a lot of stuff. And, you know, you don't want to say something that, you know, ultimately could come back and hurt that survivor in some way, shape, or form. So another thing that might be happening in shelter is what we call a threat of harm. And so they may be threatening to hurt themselves or they may be threatening to hurt another person. And so in Kentucky, Advocates don't have a legal statutory responsibility to report threats of harm to law enforcement as some other professionals do. But MPSS allows us to address those situations in shelter, typically is when it's going to happen. And we may need to let, again, you know, emergency response know, whether that's medical or police, you know, or, you know, if we can identify the victim, the intended victim of this threat of harm. We need to let that person know. And so that's allowed under MPSS. And then there's, you know, other things that are sort of more like the outside world coming into the shelter saying, you need to share information with us about this person because this is going on. So do you want me to talk about that a little bit? I would bit? love that. Yes, please. Okay, so I'll become a talking head then. So probably the most problematic of these is going to be when the police have a warrant. And basically there's two types of warrants, a search warrant and an arrest warrant. And what a warrant is is where the police have reason to believe that this individual committed a crime or that evidence of a crime might be found at this location. And they go to the county attorney they fill out an affidavit. They're sworn to that affidavit about the information that they know. And then that gets placed in front of a judge. 
So it is a very formal vetting of like, how reliable is this information? And if the judge signs the warrant, then the police can execute it. So with a search warrant, it will say on the face of the warrant, you know, police are ordered to go and search this place. And so it might be that the search warrant has the address of the shelter program on it. And in that instance, you know, I guess you can say that, you know, we can feel assured that a judge made a determination that there is some evidence of crime at the shelter or that there's a person that they're looking for that's at the shelter. And so if police do show up with a search warrant, at that point in time, we look at this, the warrant, look at the face of it, make sure it's got the right address on it, that it's signed and dated by a judge, and we're probably going to have to let them execute the search warrant. But what happens most of the time is that the police will have an arrest warrant. And so an arrest warrant, it goes through the same process, and a judge has made a determination that, yes, person X has probably committed this crime, so go out and arrest person X. And so police will get some information that person X is at the shelter. And nobody's really vetted that information. And so like a judge hasn't looked at that information and said, oh, yes, there's probable cause to believe person X is at the shelter. So that's sort of a slightly nuanced difference there. But at the end of the day, there's some case law out there that says that um, police can't go and serve just an arrest warrant at a third-party residence. And so, you know, a shelter is really like a third-party residence. It's not like your home. You know, you don't live there permanently. And so police officers will get a tip that, you know, person X is at the shelter, and then they'll come with the arrest warrant. And so that's when it requires a lot of uh, courage behalf of the staff at the program because they have to say, I can't confirm or deny that, you know, any person has ever received services here. And, you know, a lot of times law enforcement, they're not very happy to hear that. They'll say, well, uh, you know, I just heard this morning that this person is here, et cetera. And, you know, the response is, well, if you feel that, you can go get a search warrant from a judge and tell the judge what you know about that this person is here. Let the judge look at that. And they don't, you know, to them, that's not efficient and you're likely to get some push pushback. So with warrants, that's sort of kind of the trickiest thing to negotiate. And obviously, whenever the police show up with a warrant of any type, you're going to alert your supervisor, alert the director, and let them handle it if, you know, if time allows. Another thing that not infrequently gets sent to a program or brought to a program would be a subpoena. And a subpoena is different from a warrant, hasn't been looked at by a judge. It's not really a court order like a warrant is. And, you know, anyone can subpoena anybody. Like if I'm in a small claims case and I want to subpoena somebody, I can do that as a private citizen. So oftentimes the subpoenas that come to our programs are from our agency, our community agencies, and they're looking for records, especially sometimes the testimony of an advocate. And so because a subpoena isn't really a court order, the first thing we're going to do is if we can contact the survivor, we're going to ask them 
do you want us to provide these records? Do you want us to come and testify at a court hearing? A lot of times we can't contact the individual because they're long gone. This may be, you know, a child protective services case that's been going on for two or three years. And so in that situation, we don't turn over the records and we don't go to court and testify. And at that point, the director of your program might have to enlist the help of an attorney to go into court and file that motion to quash that Meg, do you get those calls a little bit? Is that something that you've got like a bat phone a little bit sometimes from some programs? So funny that you should ask, (laughs) Diane, seeing as you've been involved in a few. Yes, I have. I've gone to court multiple times for many different programs from one end of the state to the other trying to to respond to these subpoenas. And, you know, what I do is I go into court and you know, explain to the judge that there are all these reasons for why we have to maintain confidentiality and we can't just willy-nilly hand over records or come in and testify or whatever. And I'd like to say I have a 100% win record, but that's not true. And to be close though. No. No? You're really good. No, it's a complicated and niche area of the law that most judges aren't familiar with at all. And so, you know, I've had every response from the county attorney that was asking for the records, you know, just saying, oh, you're right. Yeah, I withdraw this subpoena to, you know, the judge going, mm, no, I think it's important that they have these records, turn them over. So, yeah. I have to say, going back to the story about the warrant, it's one of those things of, of that legend is built, right? We come into this work to do advocacy, but most of us have a little activisty, you know, kind of muscle in us a little bit. And so one of the, I was probably the first year that I was working at Greenhouse 17, we had somebody that was coming out to serve a warrant on one of the women. She had just gotten to shelter and we had a brand new staff and the brand new staff person kept her and her child busy by baking a cake. It was like, I don't know, 11 o'clock to one o'clock in the morning, this whole process, but just kept them busy and folk. I mean, they knew what was going on, but just wanted to get their mind off of it. And then we had another seasoned advocate who went for folks who are familiar with Greenhouse 17. We have a gate that if you go down to the gate, it'll trigger open. So she couldn't drive down to see what law enforcement was doing at the gate. So she walked down and I have that picture of kind of like the Wall Street, the bull that sort of saying like, like she just stood her ground at that gate until our director could get there and figure out what we needed to do because they were not letting in local law enforcement It was a complicated mess, but sometimes you have to stand up to the programs that you, again, you work with quite a bit, but we all have to know our role, right? We all, our program was to keep that woman and her child safe. We really felt that there was some things going on with that warrant that was maybe not quite right on the face of it, but law enforcement had a warrant and that's, they certainly were coming in to do that. So we just need to make sure we follow our process, slow it down a little bit. I'm so glad you said, you know, look at that search warrant. Is it correct? Is what they're saying in the address and the name, is that correct? Because sometimes we just get, we get a little intimidated we get a little nervous and we just want to, you know, I don't know, cooperate or help. And, and we sometimes do things that are not in the best interest of our, of our families. And so, yeah, I've got quite a few war stories of, uh, being everywhere and anywhere and getting a phone call from a terribly distraught director. You know, this has happened multiple times to me that they are just facing down some law enforcement officer that is just 
found and determined that they are going to come into the shelter. And again, usually it's an arrest warrant situation. But I always like to say with the arrest warrants, it's like this, you know, Diane, if the police showed up at your house tonight and they said they knock on your door and you get out of bed and you go to the door and they say, we have an arrest warrant for Meg Savage. Please let us in. We're going to look for her. And you could be like, I'm not. Why? Why do you think she's here? Like, what's going on with that? And they just say, well, we know she's here. We got a tip three hours ago that she's here. So I think when you explain it like that, people have a better understanding why just an arrest warrant that just has a name on it is not enough to let the police in the door. But the police don't like to hear that. And I've actually had to kind of go toe to toe with the U.S. Marshal's office that was threatening to surround one of our programs with armed marshals and keep everybody imprisoned <laughs> until they went and got their search warrant. And I'm just like, okay, yeah. well, yeah. that's what you feel like you need to do. You, you can definitely get into some sort of messes, but you know, we still tell those stories and I think it's what makes us sort of stronger at the end. But I think it goes back a little bit to the beginning of what we were saying to building those relationships with our community partners and uh, so that you have some maybe credibility and know who to call, you know, so, you know, somebody comes out to serve a warrant and you might know who's head of the domestic violence or family violence and you can kind of work something out. And if you know that somebody in your program has a warrant or you certainly do now because they're there to serve it, if you can get them to scoot, the next thing is let's try to figure out how we can help this person with that warrant. Can we call the prosecutor's office? Can we get it turned into a summons? Do we have those relationships to negotiate that with her permission. And then the third thing that I want to say is sometimes the person's wanting that service. You know, I've a few times had staff turn away a person, but they were actually sending the divorce paperwork or they were sending the child support paperwork or they were serving the protective order where she was the petitioner. So we need to, again, not act upon what without her say. You know, we sometimes we think we're being kind of bravado and we're going to say, no, we can't confirm or deny and then kind of end it there. We need to go back again to the person and go, this is someone's trying to serve this for you. You wanting to receive this paperwork. It's not for the advocate to determine. Right. And, you know, small point, if you do know that somebody is waiting for court paperwork, they can always sign a release of information in advance saying that, you know, if the sheriff's office or whatever shows up to serve this, that they want to be brought to the front office so they can receive it. I'm going to shift you a little bit into talking about documentation. Are you feeling pretty good about confidentiality up to this moment? I mean, I know it's a... There's a couple of other things that I want to mention that um, have cropped up over the years. One is a missing persons report. So sometimes the police will contact a shelter and say, we have a missing persons report for person X. And often it's person X and the kids. Um, And so that really kind of makes the police, you know, like they get very agitated. And it's like, we've got to find these police, these children. We, you know, we need to know where they are. And they'll say things like, if you could just tell us that they're there in shelter, then we won't bug you anymore. So, of course, you know, if that person is in shelter, you know, going, the appropriate response would be, I cannot confirm or deny. But then you would go to that person and say, you know, the police called, a missing persons report has been filed. So if you want to contact the police and let them know that you're okay, you know, that's your option to do that. Often, of course, with a missing persons report, 
especially if there's children involved. It could be the batterer that has filed that report, you know, because the survivor has gone into shelter without telling the batterer where they are for obvious reasons. But a missing persons report is just a report. Um, It's not a warrant. It doesn't give the police any special authority to come to the shelter or to ask for information over the phone. So you have to be very careful about how you handle those. An Amber Alert is another thing that's happened a couple of times. And an Amber Alert, again, is just where a police agency has information that they feel like a child is in serious risk. I mean, I think the language in the statute is like risk of death or sexual assault. And it's just an alert that goes out, you know, through various means. It goes through the Kentucky State Police. And again, it's not a warrant. It doesn't give the police special authority to come onto the property to search for the child or what have you. And so those situations, a knee-jerk reaction might be, oh, I have to cooperate with the police. But they aren't actually exceptions to the general rule of saying we can't confirm or deny And then you get with the director and, you know, the person's in shelter. You get with that person and you figure out what you're going to do about that. So, yeah, it's always something. It is always something. And I think going back, you know, again, to the director, reaching out to KCADV, working with sort of your seasoned staff, because sometimes what seems the appropriate thing, you might not, particularly if you're newer, you might not see all the ramifications and the rippling of sharing that information. So if you on a missing persons, you shared it. Where then does that information go? Do the, does the person who filed the missing persons, do they get noticed that, oh, yes, we found her and she's at this shelter program? Or what is that law enforcement protocol? So, so just taking a little bit of a pause and figuring out how giving information is going to be used and how that could impact later on. Whenever we have a, a woman, even when she's requested like the release of her file, we always have our director go through it first just to make sure, even if it's beautiful. You know, even if there's nothing in here that seems to be, is there something that we're seeing down the road that could cause some sort of impact that maybe she's not seeing in the immediacy? I just need the court to know I went to parenting classes and here you go. But are me, maybe are we seeing something that could jeopardize two, three years down the road possibly? So, so just take a moment and kind of look at it and, and talk with your seasoned folks to kind of help guide how that could maybe come back at you in a negative way. Good. I think it's we're a good. lot imminent. Okay. So documentation I have in gigantic, bold letters, do no harm. And there's always a little bit of debate, I think, on this, on the record keeping that we have of, you know, being really, you know, some programs, I think, that keep minimal information, you know, just the basics so that there's no concern about doing anything and that keeping anything in that file that could cause that individual, if for some reason that file is requested and open that could cause them any sort of, put them in any sort of jeopardy. And then there's other programs that have pretty, you know, lengthy counseling notes and advocacy notes in their files. So where do you kind of come down on that? Definitely the latter uh, point of view that you have to ask yourself really, you know, what is the purpose of what I'm about to write in the client file? And we're an advocacy program, right? We're not mental health, typically not, you know, qualified and credentialed mental health care providers, not, you know, doing a substance use program. And so a lot of entities, they have record keeping requirements that are driven by like their insurance reimbursement requirements or maybe their professional code of ethics. So I think that 
advocates should think really critically when they're going to write something down, like, why am I writing this down? And how can I write it in a way that is most neutral so that it conveys whatever information it is that we're wanting to convey, but without, you know, any negative connotations for that survivor? Because despite all of our confidentiality requirements, you know, someday that record might be subpoenaed and it, you know, might be available to a criminal defense attorney or it might be available to a prosecutor or it might be available to, you know, um, DCBS and the county attorneys if it's a child protective services case. It might be available to the person that's representing the batterer in a divorce action or in a protective order case. And so in all those situations, things that you put into that record may be used against that survivor in some sort of a court action. So trying to keep things minimalistic, just very factual, you know, obviously no judgment calls, no, you know, snap mental health care diagnoses that you're not able to make, such as, you know, person X came into the shelter last night, you know, drunk off their butt, and, you know, seemed very depressed. I mean, if that sort of information got into the hands of the wrong party, that could really be painful for that person at some point in time in the future. And so often just, you know, phrasing things in very neutral ways like, you know, discussed um, parenting strategies with the client or, you know, discussed medical needs or whatever. Because really, I think the reason that we're trying to document things is just to create a record for that person at some point in time if they ever want to show that they did receive services from our programs or, you know, if the record's going to be passed amongst different advocates so that so that they'll know, you know, they'll have a little bit of record of, you know, what was going on with client They can X. pick up with that person without that person having to retell, you know, their whole story. That can get really exhausting for somebody. And I, you said about non, no judgment. And, you know, I think that's a little bit of a quagmire for just people in general, right? Like we kind of know what we know and we think what we think. And so as we've been saying throughout these um, podcasts of this work doesn't just, you know, stop as far as our training, once we go through certification or we get the orientation, like we need to constantly be evolving as advocates ourselves. And we often have our own stories that we bring. Many people who come to do this work often have their own stories and they certainly come from it from their own community and spaces. And so we need to make sure that our opinion and our judgment and our bias is not tainted by our own perspective. And we really need to be doing a lot of that inner work so that we can always be objective. What I think I might be seeing, behavior that I might be seeing, I might frame it a certain way. But if I dig in enough, you know, if I dig in enough with that person, I might find there's a whole other set of facts and information and motive that I wasn't even aware of. And sometimes people can be really quick in their notes to do what you just said. She came in, she was depressed, she was drunk off her butt, da 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 da. But we don't take the time always to kind of look to see what that underlying thing is. We just feel we've we've got it figured out. And so I really implore advocates that are listening in to constantly be doing your work. Write your notes and have somebody else check your notes for objectivity because it is so critically important in our trust building of the women that we're working with. How's that? Does it sum it all up? Are we good? Yeah, I think that that hits it right on the head. Okay. 
Thank you so much. We've got more to talk about later, so we're going to take a little bit of a break. So this is the piece on confidentiality and documentation, and um, we'll be back soon with Meg. 